0: And I thought, this is one of the most resilient people I've ever met. Not just motivated and not just organized and capable, but resilient because his spirit was so strong and he had so much passion for being there.
1: Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Monica.
2: And you're listening to Cage Nation.
1: So welcome back, listeners. Hi, welcome. We are very excited to have our guest on the show today, Sarah. Um, we were just talking about how he's going to introduce Sarah because um, she does a little bit of everything. Um, so Sarah's here today to talk with us about her work with community organizing. She also teaches in the community and has a lot of different ideas and perspectives about the criminal justice system in general. Um, so welcome, Sarah. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Um, So when you think about uh, the question, when does a person's sentence end, what are some things that come to mind? Mm. Really never. I mean, I think the the
0: consequences of being incarcerated are a lifetime of dealing with that incarceration and its impact on the connections that you have with your friends and family. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. So the way that you see it is there isn't really an end date. No, no end date. Sarah, do you think there's a start date for people? Um, <laughs> that's a
0: great question. Um, I'm a sociologist and I tend to see the world in social patterns. And one of the most you know prevalent social patterns that I've observed and many others have observed is that Being an under resourced community or a member of a marginalized, exploited, oppressed group um, really significantly increases the chances that you will have, you know, significant exposure to the system in some way or another. So I'd say for communities that are under resourced, they really have the, you know, the biggest obstacles in front of them when it comes to the criminal justice system.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. You said the word exposure. Why that word?
0: The pattern of policing is one that begins from birth. Um, I work with some community groups um, around motherhood and providing peer support to mothers. And I know that women of color immediately, you know, the moment they enter the hospital, begin experiencing increased surveillance. Um, and, you know, racism that's built into the healthcare system. And I think that initial experience begins a lot of opportunities for people in authority and in the hierarchy of the healthcare system to begin to criminalize mothers and their babies.
1: So really you're talking about from the day someone's born or even before then that there are these patterns, um, that there's intentionality behind the system for those patterns too, and they really begin right from there. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily start when someone's arrested. Yeah.
0: No, and you know, this isn't to look to any individuals or groups to blame them for that exposure. It's the system that creates a heightened you know, surveillance and monitoring of people who are poor and people of color and marginalized groups. And there's really no escaping that in today's modern society. You know, the technology to monitor people is everywhere.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of like everything that we do is tracked in some way. Yeah. Yeah. So on our podcast, Cage Nation, um, we're talking about prison reentry, and what interests you or what, what draws you into that concept or that topic?
0: Well, when I think about um, you know the experiences of people in prison, it's being removed from society and being institutionalized in a way that removes your identity and connections. You just become another body in a cell, in a space that's organized around this hierarchy. And at the top of the hierarchy, you know, is a white supremacy, um, patriarchy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and other aspects of the system. And so I think that once you're out of that institutionalized context, it takes a tremendous amount to recover just personally your identity and your connections with people that are important to you. But beyond that, you know. All of the civil rights are taken away, you know, having the ability to have any political options for voting has gone, being able to find a decent job that pays a living wage is incredibly hard, um, having a job that provides health care or just, you know, the, the tools that we need to stay mentally healthy and physically healthy aren't there. And then, you know, housing insecurity is a problem for everyone in the Pacific Northwest, but most especially people who have, you know, recently been released from incarceration. So, you know, the obstacles and the complexity of the obstacles is significant, you know, for everyone. Um, And so I think the process of of reconnecting with people in community really starts from, you know, empathy, compassion, kindness, and not otherizing people because they've been in prison or because they have a felony conviction on their record. You know, that's a cultural shift. And that cultural shift happens before political shifts happen. So, you know, we're seeing that today with a lot of the movements that are, the social movements that are happening around, you know, incarceration in the prison system and and ICE, you know, immigration custom enforcement. So we're seeing a lot of convergence of ideas about, you know, locking people up because they're under-resourced doesn't solve the problem. (laughs) What solves the problem is meeting people where they're at, helping them with what they need, and building strong communities, right? When people are healthy, they don't commit crimes. (laughs) So, you know, I think... um, the sociologist in me is optimistic that we are beginning to create the conversations around creating cultures that are compassionate care-based and much less like, I'm going to control your body.
2: I think the the sociological um, perspective is really interesting when we think about the criminal justice system, right? People talk about this system. Um, but really what I'm hearing from you is it it's a it's so many systems working together um, to continue the pattern of behavior that we're in and how, how those systems interacting and working together start at birth for some people. Um, privileging, well, I would say it starts for all people, right, we, we privilege certain groups over, the, over, over other groups um, and everyone's a part of the quote unquote system from the moment that they're born. Yeah,
0: um, I you know there's a there's a legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw that probably a lot of famo- folks are familiar with today, and she's someone who coined the term intersectionality, and a lot of people think about that um, idea in terms of identity politics. Um, and how it can shape, you know, the need to include voices of the marginalized. But from a sociological perspective, we think about intersectionality as social systems that intersect to maintain systems of privilege around imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, around systems that create economic dependency um, and, you know, remove the agency from people. And so intersecting systems is a really challenging framework to get your head wrapped around. But once you start thinking about systems instead of individual or identities, you can begin to see how systems are set up to continue to keep the same group getting ahead, having not only the power in decision making, but the ability to control resources, right? And so... Looking at our prison system, you know, we have the prison industrial complex. People who are incarcerated are making all of the things that we use every day in our college classrooms and other places. And so that system that's created of economic dependency is built on, you know, racism, classism, sexism. And um, we're all part of that system, (laughs) that's for sure.
2: How do we begin to talk about, I mean, I heard you say, systems over people and people make up systems how do we kind of separate those things out because I know a ton of people myself included especially when I was learning about what these terms mean where I'm like I'm a great person I would never ever want anybody to be impacted negatively by any system how do we start having those conversations
0: oh that's a tricky one um the first thing that I think people need to do is figure out a way to see the world in patterns and see those patterns as socially rooted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that when we start to notice things like, oh, a group of people seem to be represented doing this job or, oh, a group of people seem to be concentrated and living in this area, That it's not necessarily a natural thing, but it's set up that way to benefit, right, a specific group of people. And so rather than taking the path of least resistance as someone in the system and being like, oh, it's a system problem, it's bigger than me, and therefore I can't change it, I think what's really helpful is to understand how the system is set up and then collectively, you know, work towards impacting key decision makers stakeholders people who hold power to say look we're all part of this system and it's really broken and you're the one running it and you're in charge of helping us fix it right so um, it takes a lot to get people to see the connectedness of their exploitation and marginalization but that connecting with people who are a you know, in the system really helps us to um, say, oh, we all have the same problem here. <laughs> Let's focus on who's helping to create that problem, you know. And so it, t- it takes a lot of self-care, you know, it takes a lot of community building. Um, those are things I've observed just kind of watching it happen in Southwest Washington.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking about, A a moment that I had uh, working in the system inside and um, like Hannah was saying I had tried to justify out lots of different things for myself and maybe that was a part of survival in that system to be like well I'm doing good work and like mostly things are fine um, and uh, it was easier and it was more comfortable to put on those blinders I could I was also afforded that with a lot of the privilege um, that I have in the world but there was a moment um, when I, uh, several years ago, I walked into um, segregation, basically. Um, it's like the most secure part of the prison. It's like a prison and a prison and a prison. Um, so it's very controlled. And when I walked in, um, they, everyone who was there were um, young women of color. And I couldn't I remember this moment and it's so vivid for me and I thought of it when you were talking because I couldn't there was no reason I could come up with in my mind in that moment to explain that away you saw a pattern yeah and And you didn't know why it was there no and it was right in front of me there was no denial there was I couldn't say there was no coincidence right I couldn't say well the timing or this or that it was like these are all young women of color literally locked up. I remember everyone was in a cage. Um, and I thought this is, um, this is a different reality than I've been experiencing for as long as I've worked here. It gives me chills to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It was this very startling moment, um, which represented so much. I could see these women, I could see the individuals, you know, I understood it, but then conceptually I had to, I had to, I was faced with, um, kind of, peeling back the layers of like, how could this be this moment that I'm sitting here in this position? Like, how could this be? And that reminds me a lot of what you're speaking to as far as systems. We've mentioned several systems already, healthcare system, criminal justice system, even immigration, um, however you want to think about that. So um, these are really big topics that are hard to break down, And also frustrating because it's like we're faced with having to make it palatable for people. Like, how can people digest this information? Um, And that's tough.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, engaging in conversations that are rooted in experience is the beginning of connecting with people to build community, to, you know, leverage against stakeholders. Um, I have... (laughs) very ironically had the experience of being called to grand jury duty in Washington County this um, month and did everything I absolutely could to get out of it and the judge wouldn't budge. So it just shows you, you know, how much authority (laughs) our judicial system has over an individual's life, right? Like we just don't get a choice. And so – I showed up the first week and with six other folks, you know, had to spend the day listening to a whole different group of district attorneys for the state of Oregon come in and uh, show us the evidence and show let the witnesses testify mm-hmm. and then decide as a jury whether or not there was enough evidence to convict to, to sign a bill to say yes, this should, you know, go to trial. So with with great Visions of resistance. I walked into that that <laughs> j- grand jury. <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm taking notes. Right. I'm going everything I'm going to talk Go about. Down. They're going to know about. Right? I've been preparing for this yeah. moment my whole life. So you know, the the first thing that struck me was just how invisible the whole process is. Mm-hmm. It is another check in the system of, of a whole system that's you know skewed towards. Uh, white supremacy. But I think that um, just the initial training that the jurors got was just built with implicit bias. Um, the deputy DA came in and was chatting with us about lunch options and pointed to a large um, file folder in the middle of the table. And he said, see that black thing over there? That's got all the menus for lunch. There's not really anything to good, good to eat in Washington County. I've tried. And I just thought that really set the tone for his um, view of the world, you know?
1: What do you think he's saying in that moment when he said that?
0: I think that he really sees the world in ways that are um, constructed around people of color being criminal. (laughs) And it just bled through in his language. And it was confirmed (laughs) a couple minutes later when he was explaining that he would hand out the, um, the jury voucher sheets that he gives out and signs to give to employers, and he said, you can give this to your employer or your spouse, whoever you need to prove to today that you're here. <laughs> oh. And so, you know, in in our grand jury, there are all women <laughs> except for one man. So I watched in the room, you know, their eyes widened and I didn't need to say anything at all. So I think I got lucky in that the jurors that I'm with are already a little bit more woke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, um, from there, we just every time we deliberated, we discussed all the problems, you know, the implicit bias, the problem with the, uh, the FTAs, the... Uh, failure to appears and the affidavits and, you know, we talked about the composition of all the district attorneys that were coming in and presenting data and information. And we noticed the different way they interacted with, you know, people who didn't speak English as a native language when they were witnesses and how limited they were, you know, in, in just every way I think our room was able to begin to see together all the ways that the system is so broken. And so this has been our third week, and now we're at, what do we do about it? <laughs> because this last week, it's been just a series of domestic violence cases, right? And so when you hear these stories of women and children being beaten, of course you wanna put people away, but when you think about and hear about the people who are, who are acting on the violence, they are as hurt and as traumatized as everybody else. You know They've suffered from sexual abuse, and they've suffered living in poverty, and they've suffered all sorts of things. And I think they just don't have the resources and tools, right? And so we've begun the conversation. The jurors have begun the conversation. Each time an officer walks in and presents evidence and there's a child involved, we ask, what resources did you give that child every time? And so building that, you know, human connection and changing the interpersonal relationships that are happening in the hierarchy of the grand jury, I think is nudging people along. And so that at the end of this process, maybe we'll all have figured out a way that we can together all six or seven of us say, judge, there's big problems here, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about, you know, not taking the path of least resistance, but realizing I'm a part of the system. I, I can't figure out a way to escape being a grand juror and being a part of incarcerating more poor people, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, I know if we want long-term change, we have to find a way that's going to engage the people who are in charge, right?
2: And what I heard is that from you you saying that is really that resistance can be in in changing the quest, the question, you can you can have um, or be resistant to the multiple systems by just asking a question in a different way, reframing who is responsible, because from a systems approach, we all are responsible. Yeah,
0: yeah, framing is so important, and that's you know that's really how we gain you know, shared meaning, and shared meaning is what we need if we're going to act together. So I think, you know, having the ability to frame things for people that shows them how we're connected in the system is a really powerful tool that, that if you develop it, you know, you'll be a great community organizer, you know, <laughs> make some change.
2: What does community organizing mean, and what's been your experience with community organizing? mm
0: Um, my experience with community organizing has always been that I've tried to build it into the classes that I teach. I teach sociology classes at a number of different community colleges and universities um, in a number of different communities around the Pacific Northwest. And I think that um, organizing means having people come together around a shared problem and finding shared solutions. And oftentimes that doesn't mean having to go get extra resources, but it just means, you know, working together, we can build something bigger and better than if we worked individually. Um, Emil Durkheim was a sociologist that talked about, you know, how society is unique and that we create things bigger than what we could if we worked individually. And so having that perspective of, you know, sort of like a rising tide lifts all boats is really the framework I take to community organizing, and then I always start with like who are the people that I'm closest to. Uh, usually, it's students and family members and friends who are parents of children who plays who play with my children. And so, starting with your own community, I would say, is the really best approach. The the ways community organizing fails is when someone from the outside comes in and tries to tell people what to do. And I think that's a model of community development that we're kind of used to in the United States. But, you know, I think of community organizing much more like can happen in any community with any resources. It just means people creating that shared meaning and understanding the framing the problem and then just figuring out what they're going to do about
2: it. What does that mean to have an outsider come in? Like, what does that look like?
0: We have that connectedness, but we don't see each other as connected, right? So we have these communities that we kind of define with, like in settler colonialism, where the boundaries are the fences or the boundaries are the state or the boundaries are the city, the metro versus the county, right? And so outsiders to me are people that are outside of the place that you call home, right, the place where you buy your groceries and you take your kids to play and, you know, you navigate traffic for work and you walk your dog. And so outside of your community are people who don't live there, but who come in and extract resources from your community that benefit them and not everybody else in the community, right? So a perfect example is I've worked with a lot of um, high school students in Vancouver and Kelso, Washington. And many of the people who teach and who run the administration at those schools live in Portland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet the students and the parents live in Vancouver and Kelso. So there's a really huge disconnect when there are um, student conflicts, You know, when, when the tensions of the community find their way into the classrooms among student groups. Um, When the principal tries to tell people what to do, it doesn't work. When students are given a space to connect and say, this is what we're pissed off about. How are we gonna fix this? Let's organize an event. Let's have the event. And the principal says, I support your event. (laughs) You know, that's a whole different way of organizing. And so, people who are in positions of privilege and power, like myself, you know, a cis, white, middle-class woman living in the Pacific Northwest, we have to see our role in the hierarchy and make space for, it's not my job to tell you what to do, but I'll be with you. I'll be an ally. I'll be an accomplice. I'll make space for your leadership in your community with my resources as an academic or as a researcher, as a person that cares, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, where, it's literally, I think, wearing a different hat, you know. Coming in as an outsider is... That lacking that connectedness that we need, if we're going to have the long term change.
1: Mm -hmm. And people who are most impacted by the problem should should be able to have the most influence on how to address the problem. And a lot of times, it's the opposite: the people who are least impacted but have the most power in the situation are making decisions about those folks. Absolutely. If we have listeners who are, you know, listening in, maybe not knowing much about prison reentry and um, most likely they're probably white folks if they're in the Pacific Northwest, why should they care about a topic like this?
0: A topic like reentry?
1: Yeah. Um, You know,
0: social problems don't go away. (laughs) And the problems that cause incarceration at the significant rate that we're seeing specifically of people of color and poor communities, Um, that impacts everybody. Like, it's just, it's so embedded in our system. It's invisible to us, I think, you know? I mean, literally, everything we consume in society is connected to prison labor or immigrant labor. And so... um, you know, to me, most most of our problems connected to the criminal justice system are rooted in, you know, under-resourced people. And economic systems are created to keep the group that's ahead to keep getting ahead, right? So, I mean, if you look to every September, you know, annually, there are these national prison strikes where people who have been in solitary confinement and are released for work... Go on strike and and together, you know, make significant impact and statement together in, you know, we're not going to be part of the system anymore. So we all have a role in the system. We're all impacted by the system. We should all be vested in changing the system. Right now, the change of the system part is where we all have to get on the same page. Right. For some of us, we're like, this system was broken from the beginning. We do not need it. It hurts everybody. It doesn't help us. Other folks are more optimistic that we can transform the existing system and shape it to be more helpful to people and keep people feeling safe and protected. So, you know, we're not going to get to that. Um, place until we continue adding to conversations like ones you host, you know, where we're looking at it from these perspectives and thinking about what does reentry really mean for, for everybody in the system. I know it'll put a whole lot of people out of jobs, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> to get rid of the system, but it seems to me that if we invest a lot more in healthcare and education and healthy food systems... Many of the problems that we have to lock people up for will go away, but it takes a massive shift to get people to want to pay for education rather than prisons, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, or at least the way that we are supporting or helping people cope with those challenges or problems will change quite a bit um, if we're not relying on incarceration to kind of be the, I don't know, the end all for a lot of things. I've said that the Department of Corrections, I think, has is faced with Dealing with failed education system, employment, family, court, like whatever whatever you want to say, um, they're kind of faced with uh, coping or trying to figure out all of those things. It's like when every other f- system fails, um, folks end up on the door of Department of Corrections. And that's not in defense of Department of Corrections because I actually think they do mostly a pretty terrible job. Not that there aren't good people doing good work inside, but the system itself um, doesn't do a great job at dealing with those things, but then there's still problems. And mm-hmm. so then how are we going to deal with that if we're not going to rely on that system to, to fix it?
0: Mm-hmm. We're so used to relying on hierarchy. And by hierarchy, I mean like the final word, the authority is the government. We don't get a say about the speed limit. We all have to follow the same speed limit for safety. But we don't all feel the repercussions of speeding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know That isn't an a, equitably distributed outcome some of us get more tickets tickets some of us are at higher risk of dying of an accident because our car isn't well you know like there's many different outcomes but I think there's a way to think about people where we don't need hierarchy there's a way to think about people where we don't need to call the police there's other mechanisms that we can create and value culturally and if we can educate and train people to get to, used to doing that Then we don't have the the criminal justice system will die, you know, like Mm -hmm. we'll be the choke point in in the system. Um, Let me give you an example of what this looks like in real life. So, I teach an intro to community development class um, at Portland State. Mm -hmm. And in the urban studies and planning department, you know, we're training people who will one day be leaders in creating government and community development. And in one of my classes, I had a young African-American student who came up to me the very first day of class and said, I'm really sorry if I'm going to be a little bit late this semester, this quarter, but I am sleeping under the Morrison Bridge. I'm living off my FAFSA and I put in, I've got a 4.0 from Mount Hood and I've transferred here and I just can't afford rent. And I'm able to make it. I live out of the locker that the student services provides in the new rec center where I can shower. And I can find places to stay awake and do my homework all night so that at 6 a.m. I can come to campus and sleep on campus and get rested so that by 2 o'clock I'm ready for class. And I thought, this is one of the most resilient people I've ever met. Not just motivated and not just organized and capable, but resilient because his spirit was so strong and he had so much passion for being there. And so I spent, you know, two weeks just really frazzled thinking, what am I gonna do? How can I help this person? And uh, reached out to everyone in my department that was a higher up and nobody had an answer for me. A lot of folks were, you know, saying, is he 18? Could he go to youth, foster youth? I just thought, "You, you guys are all so clueless, right? So a big snowstorm came in Portland. And at the same time that that snowstorm happened, I had a friend who was out of the country on a trip and her home was vacant. And I took the risk and I asked her, I said, I know you're out of town, but would it be okay if this student slept here just through the snowstorm?" And she said, I don't have a problem with that at all. And so, you know, a couple weeks through the snowstorm, my friend gets back. Well, she's got another property, and she's totally capable of giving him a living situation where he can afford to pay when he's getting his financial aid. And I thought, this is crazy that this is happening so easily. All I had to do was think of an alternate solution than giving him a shelter resource or dropping him off at the, you know what I mean? And it didn't take a lot of work either. And so the the really beautiful part of the story is this student has been housed since late March, um, has continued their classes uninterrupted and was able to find a roommate who runs a food cart on campus, whose brother was just deported and was looking for a roommate. Mm. So in this just miraculously humanly connected way, all these things have worked out and I don't know how long they'll work out. You know, there's probably been bumps along the way, but nobody needed to call the police because a young black man was sleeping under the Morrison Bridge. Now, the follow-up to this story is this summer, We received the adjuncts and instructors in the department received an email with a picture of a woman who's banned from campus because she's been sleeping in the hallways and removing the posters in the hallway. And so police have said that she's not allowed on campus anymore. And I thought, well, here we go again. You know, here's another person sleeping on campus that's been criminalized. And I reached out and I said, you know, how's this going to help anybody? This woman hasn't harmed anyone. She hasn't threatened anyone. She's, and so, you know, that's a work in progress. But each one we take one at a time and we find out who are the people around here that care because in that hallway, there are people that walk down that hallway that care, but we don't need to take that person that doesn't have a place to sleep and have them end up in Multnomah County jail, <laughs> you know, it just it's not gonna help anybody. Right. Except the people who are running the jail, maybe, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's 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 a challenge, it's to me in between the system and the interpersonal. But if we if we get rid of the hierarchy, right? If we say, All right, I'm not in charge, I'm not gonna tell you what to do, but I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna help listen to what you need. I think it's just a different way. I don't know if it works in, you know, high-security prison (laughs) system, but outside in the community, it works.
1: Yeah, and it also takes being innovative and creative, and then you also mentioned a risk, right? Asking your friend, like, that's a risk because you don't know. Someone could make a lot of assumptions about who that person is on the streets or um, have kind of a fear-based reaction. Um, and based on media or just what they think or whatever. And also the idea of what we term or identify as safe. I think safety is a really coded word for a lot of different things. Yeah. Especially for white people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It also, I mean, that story I think is so profound. I I think it's profound partly in that it's it's not an, an anomaly. I mean, there are so many students who have nowhere to go nowhere to live. Um, I remember being a college student and and having a lot of people in my classrooms say like, yeah, I just got out of my car. My car's parked a block away. That's where I sleep. Um, or, you know, not having any food. And so I think when we start thinking about community organizing, oftentimes white communities think like, let me help this community. Let me go in and and do something really nice, right? This like charity idea. But really it, I hear you talking about these interpersonal interactions, these, these relationships that we build and how, what struck me also was how easy it was, how much work it wasn't for you to get this person's support. It wasn't, I mean, it sure took some of your time. It took some creativity, but it's not that hard.
0: Yeah. I think you're really onto something because the connecting this way builds social networks. When we operate in the hierarchy from a top-down approach, everything's what you tell me to do. But when we work within our social groups and we connect our social groups, we create networks of new opportunities and resources, right? So, you know, your your best friend's important to you, but your best friend's friend that you kinda know is really important to you because they have a whole nother social group behind them, a whole nother set of ideas and resources. And potentials for action. And so that connectedness has to come horizontally rather than from a place of vertical, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was talking to someone the other day and they said every person brings with them the stadium of people that they've ever known or interacted with. And I think that's when we think about community in that way, we are so much more connected than we think we are. Um, And there are so many more resources then we initially maybe just think off the top of our head like that shelter like well that's not going to work in the long term right That that's not going to be productive in the long term it's not sustainable no
1: I think um even doing this project um This podcast and organizing about what we wanted it to to be about or not be about um, has allowed us to see how many people have interest and support, people who have reached out to us who are loosely connected to the work, or maybe they grew up in a family, or maybe they're in a classroom, or kind of whatever. Maybe they're just in the community and have interest in this subject, and it's been surprising to see the variety and the diversity, the kind of all walks of life who have said, I'm really interested in your work, Um, and maybe they want to be a guest, or maybe they just want to listen and follow us but I've really appreciated that because really that just started with Hannah and I deciding that we wanted to do this. Um, We didn't create a whole community to do it. We just started with the two of us, but we brought along um, a lot of other folks. And in that, through this, uh, we've created more, and that's been really impressive.
2: For listeners who are largely white, um, we have three white women in the room, three white educated women. What does white supremacy mean and how does it impact the the systems that you're talking about? And how do white people sit with that idea?
0: I love this question because I think this is where a lot of us go wrong. We it's it's. Racism is something that I think people are a word they're used to saying and feeling comfortable with if they're white. But white supremacy is not the same thing as racism. White supremacy isn't, you know, prejudiced against a group of people. White supremacy is when we look to the most powerful positions in our society— In my mind, that's like, who's the boss? The president of the United States, the Congress, the people that run major corporations. When we look at the composition of the people that fill those powerful positions, they are white men, white Christian men. (laughs) And so one way to look at white supremacy is to measure it Who has the most powerful positions? Who has the dominant role in society, right? So if you pull up, you Google the presidents of the United States of America for any child and open it up and you look at the images and say, what's the pattern? The kid's gonna be able to find the pattern, (laughs) you know? We're not really taught to think about the presidents like that in public education. We're supposed to memorize who they were and what year they were president, but we are taught to see that pattern as invisible. So one, white supremacy centers whiteness as being the dominant, most powerful decision-making group. The other two things that I think white supremacy does is it uh, centers whiteness as the standard for comparison, and it centers whiteness in a positive light. So I, I do this exercise in my classes where I show Vanity Fair magazine's headlines for two sexual predators, um, Vanity Fair is a pretty liberal, you know, popular culture magazine. I don't subscribe to it, but it, it makes the newsfeed once in a while, you know. Yeah. So there are two men who in very recent history have gone from being very rich and famous to doing really bad things and, you know, suffering the consequences of that. So one is Mr. Matt Lauer, and now Matt Lauer's made the news again recently, but that's that's just recently. But originally, Matt Lauer's story is that he was this, you know, handsome white male anchor for NBC and the Today Show, just a Family
2: Guy, e- family
0: everybody's guy. grandma, and Sweet Sixteen came for Matt Lauer to hang yeah. out in the streets of New York, right? And then we have Mr. Bill Cosby, who was, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. I remember the Cosby show and the the Jell-O pudding commercials. And, you know, Bill Cosby was the middle-class African-American doctor who, (laughs) you know, had a great family and was comedic. And so within the last few years, both of these men have been publicly outed as being sexual predators in ways that are, it's just absolutely horrific. It's, it's not just even a question of, oh, I was uncomfortable. It is they are absolute predators who are rapists, right? And so Vanity Fair did a couple of articles around these men. And if you just Google Vanity Fair Matt Lauer and Google Vanity Fair Bill Cosby, the headlines that come up and the pictures that come up in that magazine representing those se- sexual predators is vastly different. Matt Lauer's making his comeback. He's seen in an image shaking hands with grandma, and there's a little girl in the background for her sweet 16 party, right? And this is after he was, you know, removed from NBC. Now, the same magazine cast Bill Cosby as, you know, drugging teenage girls, and the image is with a group of other black men who have very upsetting looks on their faces, and we don't know who the black men are. We don't know if they're security or if they're there is attorneys or what. It's just a group of black men, right? And so we can see the framing in the corporate media around this idea that white is good, white is positive, white is safe, and everything else is the comparison for that right? The standard. And so that's how I look at white supremacy. White supremacy isn't this tokenized multiculturalism of, you know, include this group here and there. White supremacy is our systems are set up to maintain the same dominant group of people, right? And we're seeing that happen over and over again over in history. So we know they've set the system up pretty well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. What I think is important to to note within that is white supremacy identifies whiteness as an individual, um, either success or failing. Right, it's it's one person. But when we talk about systemic and institutionalized racism, we group people together based on their grouping and say it's a group failing or it's because of their identity that that they you know did whatever. Um, whereas with with Matt Lauer despite you know all the stuff all the horrific like you said things that he has done still is in the public eye is not incarcerated um and and when we look at the treatment even just the the visibility of both of these men it's very clear that matt continues to experience uh, tons of privilege yeah
0: yeah Definitely there. I mean, you know, Matt lost his job, but Matt's got a lot of other gigs Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Matt's not in jail. (laughs) And so Matt's privilege continues, you know, totally agree with you there. Although more recently it's come out that uh, there's somebody else that's accused him of rape Mm -hmm. and it looks like Matt might be drugged down for a little bit. You know, it'll be interesting to see him come back up bobbing for air. (laughs) Maybe vacationing in Martha's vineyards again, whatever it takes for him to get his mental health back, you know? because sure, sure,
2: it's that individual problem. Yeah, not a problem. right, right. How do we understand white supremacy and then the alt right?
0: Mm, that's a great question. I think.
2: And what is alt right for people who.
0: Yeah. Don't know? Um, You know, I'm 43 years old, and I think of the alt-right as sort of the contemporary KKK. (laughs) They are the far, far, far edge of zero tolerance, zero safety, (laughs) zero trust of anyone, of other people, of other communities, of government. (laughs) And I think the alt-right are a group of white men who are feeling threatened and who are feeling the impact of global capitalism right I mean when you start experiencing um, your community shifting because of things like gentrification and urban renewal and, you know, people from what you have always thought of as your community start moving in, hostilities increase significantly when there aren't other resources, right? And so we've seen this in Kelso, Washington. Um, You know, it's up there just on the river. It's got such an industrial legacy. You know, several generations of people Doing the hardest work in the crappiest conditions, leaving, you know, a a legacy of pollution, and yet it's their space and they want it. And they don't want to have to tolerate, you know, um, refugees from the Northern Mariana Islands who are being displaced because of the militarization of their homes by the U.S. (laughs) Like they don't want to see those connections, right? So I think... um, Getting, getting to the original like land and resources, like having conversations with people around. You know, I realize that (laughs) this is your space and that you want to have a gun and you don't want anybody else here. But like, what was this space before you were here? You know, Um, I find the alt right very dangerous. I find them violent. I know there are various groups surrounding Portland and Southwest Washington, um, groups that we've kind of organized around our, you know, Patriot Prayer and some of the activities with Joey Gibson um, and the Proud Boys. They have, you know, left a footprint on Clark County Sheriff's Department. Um, They have beaten up a teenage child at the mall. Um, all sorts of things happening in the community that are impacting um, people from the alt-right. So, you know, the alt-right are just under-resourced people like us, but they've internalized this hatred as a way to think that they can get ahead, you know, and I think it it takes a lot of work getting to that human connection but you know i there's like a dozen different groups around here we pass around a sheet at some of our events that show people the symbols because if you see them in like graffiti tags or people's tattoos then we can create community watch and community surveillance and we can begin to build a legal case against the individuals in our community But I think it takes much more regional efforts, you know, like Cider Riot and the police and all of that to really do the work of removing them permanently from our community. But I think, you know, community organizing gives us space to manage the alt-right in ways where if we get enough communities around it, they don't have anywhere to go. Right Mm -hmm. now, I think um, Patriot Prayer is really working to get on the battleground city council mm-hmm. so those you know tiny rural communities outside of Vancouver and Portland where they you can know have some
1: influence. wealthy
0: people live who are a little bit less supportive of government and taxes and you know they're not super racist but you know they'll tolerate the free speech and that's where we start getting into trouble right yeah. so yeah Well, and
2: I think what's what can be challenging with the alt-right is they do develop and build relationships with um, white folks oh, and yeah. Because white communities tend to think or assume that they don't have connections to um, these issues, similarly to with Matt Lauer, this individual problem, right? Um, when white people experience poverty, it's an individual problem. Um, it's it's you know they they are experiencing this rather than a systemic experience. Um, the alt right does come in, and they they can really. Infiltrate, and I'm using that word specifically. Um, communities that they are ahead of time targeting. It's not like this. Oh, I just met you know Joey at the store. It's they're intentionally targeting communities for a reason.
0: Yeah, and you know, over the last couple years, they've acquired more funding. I mean, there's very clearly people in Washington D.C. who are providing resources to people like Joey Gibson to travel between Seattle and Berkeley, and that's you know that's his. Just place that he's trying to travel and spread his evil. So uh, they are—they are, they do have some tools. It's interesting. Their tools aren't nearly as good as ours. But you're right—that it's a tricky situation. <laughs> really tricky. There are a lot of white people that have sympathy towards the arguments that are made many times irrational illogical arguments that are made by the alt-right you know they really fall prey to that pretty easily and I think it gets back to that fear fear and lack of trust right if we have strong social trust then you can come in and tell me to worry and be scared about my neighbor but I won't because I know my neighbor you know Mm -hmm. I won't need to call the police and be afraid because I've talked to my neighbor yeah
1: yeah I'm really impressed by um the amount of energy and effort that you have behind this work and Mm -hmm. like the various venues that you also get to exercise this so I know um,
2: I was thinking like I was like gosh I think I believe she wasn't my teacher by
0: accident you know I I grew up next door to sociologists Mm -hmm. and when my family had its own dysfunctional trouble and stuff they were my auntie and uncle and I Mm -hmm. think you know planted seeds in me early to see the world in different ways but I'm an adjunct, which means I'm nobody's agent. I'm a free agent. And that gives me a lot more voice. I have a lot more academic freedom, and I don't have to worry about, you know, my funding stream because I'm doing it with community. <laughs> so there's – it's a precarious situation, you know. I don't have job security or get paid to do it. But, like, you have to do what you love, right? What's Absolutely. Our purpose in life
2: is yeah. to find out what we want to do, right? So – what does the prison pipeline mean and how do you kind of see your your footprint within that
0: it's awful it is so sad to see small little children criminalized it breaks my heart and makes me cry whenever I see it happen in my children's school and I remember the first year my oldest son was there kids were lined up in the hallway to do an activity and there was a janitor there and the janitor walked up to the one smallest child in the whole group a little black boy and said What are you doing here? And, you know, that kid had every right to be there as everybody else, but it was just immediate that he was otherized and that the tone coming from the authority was one of threat. And uh, I think those are the things that begin the school-to-prison pipeline. I think that when you are in a place where everybody is not like you you know like the administrators the teachers for the most part right for the most part are our white middle class folks who aren't living in that community when they are the ones who are teaching you they don't have that connection that that kids need to fill their cups you know schools are becoming more draining than they are cup filling and they're just another example of what under resourcing Important institutions does, right? Like when teachers have to teach 35 students and Chromebooks become the teaching tool um, and you know young children aren't taught socio-emotional learning skills and all that, it all plays out in these ways where the group that's continually impacted are are the youngest children of color, right? They're the first ones to be penalized, the first ones to be disciplined, the first ones to be stigmatized as having a behavioral problem, the first ones to be referred to for medication. You know, nobody stops and says, hey, you wanna take 15 minutes and have a snack? (laughs) You wanna go lay down and take a rest? Hey, can I sit with you and help you feel better for a minute? Teachers don't have the resources to do that now. But if we had those resources, I think it would make a difference, you know? but that school to prison pipeline is just heart-wrenching because it just goes through all of middle school and high school, you know, and at some point it stops being the police off it stops being the school resource officer you're talking to and it becomes, you know, the metro police or the county sheriff and mm-hmm. it's really hard to get out of that system, you yeah, know, once
1: you're in it, yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, part of unveiling the complicated is like getting us different angles different perspectives of the system right like what you're doing with your podcast like people who've experienced it from working in it from being incarcerated in it from community organizing you know that that helps us understand how to find the choke points. I think of it as choke points, right? Like plumbing systems are vast and intricate, but it takes one clog before it really screws up your plumbing. (laughs) And when the plumbing gets screws up, that's the opportunity to build new. So we need people to help clog the system, i.e. people of privilege working in the system saying, you know what, this isn't working. I'm not going to do my job this way. But we also need people in the system who are impacted by it saying, here's how we're going to make it better. This did not work for me. Look at, you know, look at this impact. So I think uh, building that narrative around how complicated the system is is all we can do, you know.
2: How would you inspire white communities or white, white individuals to lean into that discomfort? That might come by either resource sharing or stepping aside or allowing someone else to be an expert in in whatever that looks like.
0: It takes doing a lot of homework. You know, you don't want to put that responsibility on people who are exploited in the system, right? To educate you. So for me personally, reflecting, you know, when I made conscious choices to be anti-racist and be an accomplice and remove the patriarchy from my interpersonal life. I went to connecting with women of color that I had known previously and just started building the closest, richest relationships that I could with them, you know. And now I think, you know, three years later, having set that intention, like if Facebook's any measure, I look at my network. It's all women, you know, and we're all talking about the same thing and sharing things that contribute to building the conversation and connecting. And it's beyond Facebook, you know, that's a bad example. But I just think it was like a tangible like, wow, all these people are gone. And look at all these people I've added to my life. And, and then also as a white person, just listening and listening and listening and listening <laughs> and not whitesplaining or mansplaining or telling people about what you know really takes a lot of listening and showing up. In, in community organizing, if we show up, we show up with reciprocity, right? Like, we don't just show up one time. We invest in relationships, and so we make our weak ties strong. Like, you're my friend of my friend. Well, now we're going to be really good friends, right? So strengthening social groups and social networks is the best social tool we have, right? Yeah.
2: You said anti-racist. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that's getting back to like understanding white supremacy and thinking about how diverse our country is and how people who should be in position, people in positions of power should represent that diversity. And so for me being anti-racist is literally devoting my time, energy, and resources to scaffolding the projects and programs and ideas of people of color I'm close with. So finding the organizations and groups in my community that are doing the work, that have the values and mission of the long term, and just (laughs) spending my weekends doing that work, you know, less vacations for me, more community work with others, Mm -hmm. you know. And and I don't mean others with a capital O. (laughs) I mean with people in my community. Yeah. Yeah.
1: People that you're close with. Yeah. Or that you know.
0: Yeah. It's really – it's not – It doesn't feel good if you come as a stranger. You know, you have to start from a place of connection if you want to build stronger connections. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that would be my advice.
2: What inspires you to keep going and keep doing this really difficult work? Hmm. I have no idea.
0: Good Mm self-care. You know, I think that's a I if I were if I were drained or if I didn't have the very strong social support network that I do, I couldn't keep doing it in the way that I do. I would have to find a different way. So, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup, and the best way to fill your cup is oftentimes to be with other people. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's probably what keeps me going.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. And um, I'm excited for our listeners to hear more about your work. Um, And I think that the kind of work that you're describing, I think really inspires us. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Sarah.